this week we're going to have a, a very different, um, almost exact opposite topic. We're going to be talking about childlikeness and having a childlike posture um, in the world. So uh, we will have dinner. It'll start at 5.30. Dinner will be provided and childcare will also be provided. So um, go ahead and bring kids. Um, it'll be a really fun time. Um, and if you are planning on coming to that, you can go ahead and um, talk to me or talk to the wheelers to RSVP for that just so we can get, yep, um, Nathan's right there, um, just so we can get an idea of kind of food and uh, yeah, kind of what to expect for that. So if that sounds interesting, we'd love to see you there. Um, and with that, I'm going to invite John to read our scripture for the morning. A reading from Psalm 31. I take refuge in you, Lord. Please never let me be put to shame. Rescue me by your righteousness. Listen closely to me. Deliver me quickly. Be a rock that protects me. Be a strong fortress that saves me. You are definitely my rock and my fortress. Guide me and lead me for the sake of your good name. Get me out of this net that's been set for me because you are my protective fortress. I entrust my spirit into your hands, you Lord God of faithfulness. You have saved me. I hate those who embrace what is completely worthless. I myself trust the Lord. I rejoice and celebrate in your faithful love because you saw my suffering. You were intimately acquainted with my deep distress. You didn't hand me over to the enemy, but set my feet in wide open spaces. The word of the Lord. All right. Amen. Well, I'm really happy to be able to close out our Y'all Saint season by talking about John Muir. Um, and I guess as I start, just out of curiosity, who here has heard of John Muir? Okay, awesome. That makes me really, really happy. And if you've never heard of him, we're going to learn a little bit about him this morning. Um, he lived an amazing life as an explorer, a farmer, a geologist, an inventor, a philosopher, a writer, uh, an environmentalist, a theologian. He's, the, he's probably most famous, though, um, for introducing Americans to the beauty and the wonder of places like Yosemite and Yellowstone and Alaska, and for fighting to preserve certain areas of wilderness from industry so that they could be enjoyed in all of their natural beauty. Um, because of this, he's often called the father of our national parks. Um, but in my life, John Muir has had a profound impact as a sort of spiritual mentor. On the surface, my life looks nothing like John's. As a seminary student, I probably spent as much time staring at a book or a laptop as he did hiking around mountains and walking glaciers. Um, there are probably two things that I have in common with him. We both grew up in Wisconsin, so that's one. And then we also, as you can see from, oh, from the last picture, um, I, neither of us shave often. <laughs> It has very different results, but yeah, we've got that going for us. Um, <laughs> now, what I've found is that John had a really special ability to see everything in the world around him with deeply Christian eyes. I think we can all benefit from his beautiful way of life with God. 
So this is what I want to invite us into this morning, a sort of mirror Christianity, if you will. In John's upbringing, he was introduced to two different ways of seeing the world. First, as a child, he was told that the world was a distraction from the things that really matter, which were all spiritual. His father, Daniel, was a very strict Christian fundamentalist, and they moved from Wisconsin to Scotland, or from Scotland to Wisconsin, um, because Daniel wanted a place where the family could have a sanctuary that was free from the corrupting influences of the outside world. So John's life here consisted of only two things, work on the farm and studying scripture. Later in life, he would estimate that he had almost the entire Bible memorized, and scripture reverberates in all of his writings. He was told that the world was full of possibilities, but nearly all of them led to certain destruction. Salvation in Christ was something that took that big, bad world and turned it into something small and manageable. It shrunk it down into a nice little box. Now, in this box, the complexities of the world were made simple. Messiness was made neat, and comfort could be found in absolute certainty about everything. John's lot in life as a Christian was to stay safely within the bounds of this box. Maybe you've encountered this version of salvation, this salvation that sounds more like a cage. But as a young man, John learned a second way of viewing the world. This came when he took a job at a sawmill. The mill operators saw that he possessed a unique genius and an incredible work ethic, and they correctly predicted that he could do wonders for their bottom line. Here, he was taught that the world was not bad. In fact, it was very good. Very good, specifically, for making a profit. Everything in the world could be leveraged for personal gain. Trees weren't just trees, they were lumber that could be assigned a market value. People weren't just people, they were potential or networking connections. In this vision, salvation came by possessing the world, by using more of its resources to gain control of more of it. Maybe you've encountered this gospel. I think in our culture, it's hard to avoid it. But then John came upon a new way of seeing the world. One day when he was working at the mill, he was working with some um, heavy machinery and a file flew up and hit him in the eye. And he was temporarily blinded for six weeks. Now in his darkness, he had a lot of time to reflect on the gift of eyesight. He made a resolution that if he gained his sight again, he would use that gift to gaze upon the beauty of God's created world. See, before working at the mill, he had a brief stint at the University of Wisconsin where he had fallen in love with botany and geology and literature. And so he would have the foundational knowledge to appreciate the things he would see in the world. So sure enough, he regained his sight and immediately he took off on a thousand mile walk to the Gulf of Mexico. His only purpose on this walk was to just look at all the plants between the Midwest and Florida. Now this eventually took him to California, where he would look long at the wilderness of Western North America, and he would go on to write about it with so much passion that he would inspire an entire industry of nature tourism from the east 
over to the Wild West. He had discovered that the world was more wonderful than he could have ever imagined, that it was, to quote Gerard Manley Hopkins, charged with the grandeur of God. It's this way of seeing the world that I want us to consider this morning. As we live life with God, everything around us in the world will always have more meaning, never less. Everything will always become brighter, never dimmer. This is the kind of salvation that we see in this week's psalm, Psalm 31. Here, the psalmist is surrounded on all sides by the enemy, by forces that seek to destroy, to humiliate, to lead astray. The walls are closing in. The enemy's net is about to fall. The imagery is tight. It's narrow. It's claustrophobic. But in verse 8, salvation comes from God, who sets the psalmist's feet in a wide open space. I love this way of thinking about salvation. To me, it resonates with Paul when he says that Christ has set us free for freedom's sake. God is absolutely a refuge where we find safety. But when we enter that fortress, we find that the rooms are infinitely large, that we're given permission, we're even encouraged to explore. When we say yes to God, our feet are set in a wide open space. We find ourselves like John Muir, looking out at a grand landscape, the wild country of God. And in that vision, the entire world takes on a freshness, a vibrancy. This is because all things, from the big important things in life to the tiny things, are all caught up into God. We begin to see the world around us in light of the truth that God has made all human beings to dwell in harmony with God and with each other. That God has entered into this world in order to save it and is releasing resurrection into this death-scarred earth in anticipation of the day when all things will be made new. It's not so much that we learn to see God in all things, it's that we learn to see all things in God. So to help us see this, um, we're gonna do, I guess, a little imaginative exercise this morning. Um, and we're going to follow John Muir into the wilderness. And as we learn with him how to look at places like Yosemite and Yellowstone, we're also going to learn how to view Durham and our workplaces and our families. We're going to learn to see the world in God. So as we join John in the wilderness, we must first begin with a baptism. We arrive, in his words, choked in the sediments of society, so tired of the world. The pressure and anxiety of life has desensitized us to the world. We only have the energy to focus on the people and the things that we're told are the most important, and we slowly learn to tune everything else out. But Mir says that when we come to a place like Yosemite, that we are surprised, we're charmed, we're shaken out of our apathy into newness of life. Our soul breathes deep and free in the shoreless atmosphere of God's love and beauty. According to Paul, we enter 
the Christian life through a similar baptism. He writes that in baptism, our old self joins with the death and burial of Jesus, only to rise again with Christ as a new creation, walking, like Mir says, in newness of life. Our old ways of seeing the world are put to death, and we learn to see everything with resurrection eyes. Now, it may take some time to get acquainted with those new eyes. See, imagine if we stepped out of here this morning and we were immediately confronted with the reality of how much God cares about every single blade of grass, how much God cares for every insect and every tree, not even to mention how much God loves every single human being that's walking around, how much God desires communion with them. It would be, I think, even disorienting. We we would be blinded by the brightness of the world that we're stepping into. John sees a similar thing happen when first-time visitors come to some of the most beautiful places on earth. Listen to what he says um, about someone's first time seeing the Sierra Mountains from a scenic overlook. He says, when looking for the first time from an all-embracing standpoint like this, The inexperienced observer is oppressed by the incomprehensible grandeur, variety, and abundance of the mountains, rising shoulder to shoulder beyond the reach of vision. And it is only after they have been studied one by one, long and lovingly, that their far-reaching harmonies become manifest. Jesus walked the earth in perfect attunement with the mind, heart, and eyes of God. And yet, he showed this by taking things one by one, by looking long and lovingly at a single woman in the crowd who touched his garment, at one tax collector in a tree, at a thief on a cross next to him. Maybe the way that we will learn and grow accustomed to seeing the far-reaching harmonies of God is by paying attention to its manifestations in the things God has placed directly around us, in the people we spend time with every day, in the places we walk or drive past on our daily commute, the routines in our lives that become habit. As we begin to move in step with God's patterns in these small things, I think our vision of the entire world will be transformed and saturated with the story of God. And in that, our every thought, word, and deed will be caught up into that story. Now, at this point, you may be thinking that if you spend every day hiking around the mountains like John Muir, then yes, it would be easy to see the glory of God in everything around you. Compared to that, your life might feel so ordinary so mundane. Between work and home, your schedule is packed with either the most boring things you can imagine or the most stressful and chaotic things. You don't have time to go sit in the yard and look at dandelions for hours. Now, this may be an overstatement, uh, but I've definitely felt this, especially when reading someone like John Muir. And luckily, I think he can actually help us here. See, despite spending his days in California surrounded by towering mountains and giant trees and ferocious bears, 
he became fixated on studying glaciers, these bland and slow-moving masses of ice. Um, and we do have a picture of one of these glaciers that he loved up in Alaska. Um, see, at that time, geologists had assumed that Yosemite was formed by some abrupt, violent geological phenomenon. But John was convinced that this is not how God typically works in the world. God's hand moves patiently and deliberately. Our God is a God of glaciers. So on this basis, he set out to prove his theory that Yosemite was formed by glaciers, which if any of you have a background in science, you know that that is typically not how research works. Um, but this, he did turn out to be correct in his hypothesis and did convince the majority of scientists. But I want us to consider his idea of the glacial gospel. See, when we are baptized into this new way of seeing the world, it's tempting to think that our world will instantly turn from mute to resonant with the voice of God, that God's presence will always be intimately felt, that everything that happens in our life will be able to see how it fits into God's larger plan. But how often does it feel like our world has been frozen over with to-do lists and routines? How often does it feel like the warm presence of God that we thought would guide us has gone completely cold? So much of our life seems to be lived in the glaciers. But Muir reminds us that it is through the subtle and steadfast work of a glacier that God carved the great mountain peaks, those rocky cathedrals where God's presence is pleased to dwell. The other effect of a glacier is that in its wake, it leaves this incredibly fertile soil where beautiful glacial gardens grow. And I have another picture of one of these. Um, this is also in Alaska. Um, Muir writes in describing these, these gardens of flowers that God's glacial mills grind slowly, but they have been kept in motion long enough in California to grind sufficient soil for a glorious abundance of life. This reminds me of the panels outside the church that remind us to trust in the slow work of God. See, throughout the narrative of the Israelites in scripture, God is content to take his time. Decades and centuries will go by without any recordings of God's activity but it all leads to the day when salvation comes in the form of a baby. In the same way, the long history of the church, the stories of our lives, may feel like a glacier at times, but, but it's all part of God's mission to redeem all things. John Muir teaches us to see the glaciers as signs of God's work in the world. Now, this is a great vision, but you may be thinking that oftentimes the world doesn't just feel frozen. Sometimes it feels downright hostile. Suffering tears the world apart at its foundations, and it seems that God is either punishing us or is completely absent. Muir was certainly no stranger to this feeling. Wilderness exploration is not 
easy business. And there were many times when he was on the brink of death, when he felt so small compared to the terrifying power of nature that despair seemed to be his only choice. So to see his approach to these kinds of situations in life, we're going to look at one of his descriptions of a night that he spent in Yellowstone, an area that has all these earthquakes and volcanic activity. And we have, yeah, this is the picture that I could find that gets at like kind of the apocalyptic nature of Yellowstone. Um, so listen to Mir talk about a night in Yellowstone. He says, in these natural laboratories, one needs stout faith to feel at ease. The ground sounds hollow underfoot, and the awful subterranean thunder shakes one's mind as the ground is shaken, especially at night in the pale moonlight, or when the sky is overcast with storm clouds. In the solemn gloom, the geysers, dimly visible, look like monstrous dancing ghosts, and their wild songs and the earthquake thunder replying to the storms overhead seem doubly terrible, as if divine government were at an end. This describes an experience at Yellowstone, but doesn't it also describe what it's like to endure suffering? To feel like everything around you is a threat even the ground that you stand on seems ready to fail at any moment. But this passage also sounds like the Bible's description of a day that the church has come to call Good Friday, when Jesus was killed on a cross. The sky went dark, the ground was shaken, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? as if divine government were at an end. In this moment, Christ entered into the depths of suffering and sin and death. But let's go on to read Muir's description of the next morning at Yellowstone. And we have a picture of morning in Yellowstone. He says, but the trembling hills keep their places. The sky clears, the rosy dawn is reassuring. And up comes the sun, like God pouring his faithful beams across the mountains and forest, lighting each peak and tree and ghastly geyser alike, and shining into the eyes of the reeking springs, clothing them with rainbow light and dissolving the seeming chaos of darkness into varied forms of harmony. The ordinary work of the world goes on. Gladly, we see the flies dancing in the sunbeams, birds feeding their young, squirrels gathering nuts, and hear the blessed oozel, which is like a blackbird, singing confidingly in the shallows of the river. Most faithful evangel, calming every fear, reducing everything to love. John Muir testifies that God's faithful love can even redeem the moments where God feels the most absent. Suffering is still suffering, but seeing the world with resurrection eyes allows us to acknowledge it in all its awful terror while still holding on to hope. <clears throat> 
On Easter Sunday, at rosy dawn, the light of the resurrected Christ went out from the empty tomb and shone upon the world. Death had been defeated by the morning light. News of this victory was first announced by ordinary women, and Muir heard it proclaimed by the ordinary reassurances of sunrise and squirrels and singing birds. Now it may come to the world through ordinary people like us. So this journey with John has taken us to the heights of the Sierra Mountains, the frozen, to the frozen glaciers that formed Yosemite, to the horrors and beauty of Yellowstone at night. It has taken us from the waters of baptism to finding the joy of God's beauty in small things, to enduring icy seasons of silence from God, to the hope of resurrection in the darkest moments. Friends, I don't know what awaits you in the world as you leave Oak Church this morning. But I do know that the world that you're stepping into is full of possibilities because it is covered in the grace of God, even if it doesn't always feel like it. I also know that here in this place, you're at a sort of base camp, surrounded by fellow explorers in the wild world of God. Here, find nourishment for your bodies and souls around the table. Trade stories of the places you've been, of the places you're going. You might meet people who have been there before or are planning to go there. Open the old guidebooks from travelers who have come before, people like Ida B. Wells, Maria Montessori, and Ignatius of Loyola, and John Muir. And in all of this, I pray that you'll learn to hear the song of praise that resounds through the earth as deep calls to deep, mountain calls to mountain, and glacier calls to glacier. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the wonderful world that you've created, this world that you say is good and very good. God, I pray that as we spend time with you this morning, as we spend time with one another, God, that you would shape our hearts, our minds, shape our vision so that we would see the world the way that you see it, so that we would feel the world for the world the way that you feel for it. God, we thank you for the gift of your kingship. God, that even when it doesn't feel like it, God, that you do rule and that we can place our hope in you and in your steadfast love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.